That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what happens when the experts get it wrong. How much radiation is in our food supply? How are we to know? And how rigged are the organizations that are supposed to be in charge of our nuclear safety? Learn how the nuclear industry tries to keep the truth from us from the astonishingly knowledgeable Cindy Folkers, Beyond Nuclear's expert on ionizing radiation and its impact on human health and the environment. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, January 22, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. In an unprecedented move, The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, has shifted 47 Japanese nuclear reactors from the category in operation to the category long-term shutdown in its web-based power reactor information system. The number of nuclear reactors listed as in operation in the world thus drops from 437 to 390. In spite of a clearly more pro-nuclear government that came in with the election of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, more on that story shortly, it will likely take years until more power plants could get online in Japan, if they ever do. Prime Minister Abe stated on January 4th, We will first of all determine whether or not to restart nuclear power plants on the basis of scientific safety standards. Then, over the course of roughly three years, we will assess the futures of existing nuclear power plants. Naturally, this is an area in which we should make our determination in accordance with the principle of gradually decreasing our degree of reliance on nuclear power to the greatest extent possible. Abe, keep them all shut down now. What the World Nuclear News, a pro-nuclear agency, labels tough new rules for Japanese nuclear power plants have been revealed in a draft form. Among the points raised are that utilities will be required to provide alternative, possibly mobile power supplies and multiple sources of cooling water. All reactors will also need filtered vents to allow potentially explosive hydrogen to escape safely in the event of serious core damage. The most difficult and potentially expensive, repeat, expensive, are you hearing this nuclear industry, expensive, you never like to spend money, ideas, are that power plants need a backup control room and a method of injecting water to cool a molten core that has already left the reactor vessel but remains in containment. Power companies should also be capable of, get this, dealing with a severe accident situation for an entire week without outside help. Tell that to TEPCO. According to Nuclear Hot Seat, these rules are not tough, but evidence of an unexpected outbreak of suspected nuclear sanity in Japan. Meanwhile in Japan, there are allegations of general election fraud. The pro-nuclear Liberal Democratic Party, LDP, won the majority of votes in Japan's most recent election, even though they had only 14% of the vote. The media said one of the reasons why LDP won was that there were so many new parties that supported a nuclear-free society, a majority could not be reached by any of them. However, there have been many reports from the general public on allegations of election rigging. Polls show that 85% of the nation of Japan does not want nuclear energy, yet none of the political parties that supported a nuclear-free society did well. A written complaint of election fraud was submitted to the Tokyo High Court on January 14th and was accepted. Okay, in preparation for the second anniversary of Fukushima, it's clear that the pro-nukers have already disseminated their talking points and found favorable media acceptance. Watch out for the word radiophobia. That is the newest focus of the pro-nuclear disinformation talking points in the media. An article in Nature magazine by Jeff Brumfield tries to convince us that the reason people are having health effects from Fukushima is because they are afraid of what might be happening to their bodies. 
A poll published last year by Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C., for example, found that 76% of Japanese people believed that food from Fukushima was not safe, despite government and scientific assurances to the contrary. What that shows is that 76% of the people who were polled were out of denial about problems with radiation and didn't trust the government. This looks like it makes perfect sense. But the disinformation campaign is something to watch. When you see articles like this, there was also a comparable article in Forbes this week. When you see articles like this, go online and comment. Write letters to the editor. Contradict this story. And a really good thing to do would be to promote Dr. Helen Caldicott's International Symposium on Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima, which will provide the incontrovertible, verifiable facts, scientific facts, about what happened to all of us in the wake of Fukushima. A fish caught near Fukushima on Friday, January 18, had a record-breaking level of radioactive contamination. 254,000 becquerels per kilogram. That's 2,500 times the legal limit. It's even too radioactive to be imported and sold in the United States. As a result, TEPCO, for their own protection, is installing new nets 20 kilometers around the Fukushima Daiichi site to avoid highly contaminated fish getting too far away and being consumed by other species. Too bad they can't corral the radiation that way or the TEPCO executives. An NHK announcer has sued that agency after being fired for evacuating Japan because of Fukushima. The French woman sued NHK, claiming it unfairly dismissed her when she took a leave of absence from work after Fukushima began. According to the complaint, Emmanuel Bowden was fired unexpectedly a week after she took this leave of absence based on the French government's evacuation order. She said... In order to protect my family, I decided to temporarily leave Tokyo. Prior to my departure, I followed the required NHK work procedures, which included obtaining permission from my management. Another way in which Japan is trying to penalize sanity. That seems to be the word today. Here's the evil numbnuts of the week award, and it's really bad. According to The Guardian in the United Kingdom, Taro Aso, Japan's finance minister, said this past Monday that the elderly should be allowed to hurry up and die to relieve pressure on the state to pay for their medical care. To compound the insult, he referred to elderly patients who are no longer able to feed themselves as tube people. No idea what he's saying to younger people or about younger people who are complaining because they have medical consequences from Fukushima. Over in Europe, a green-led initiative to phase out the use of nuclear energy in Switzerland by 2029 has secured enough support for a national referendum on the issue to be held. Switzerland's federal government has already decided to phase out its five nuclear reactors by not replacing them with new nuclear capacity at the end of their anticipated working lives. The decision would effectively see all of Switzerland's nuclear power plants shut by 2035. This initiative for an earlier phase-out was put forward by an alliance of environmental groups, political parties, anti-nuclear organizations, and trade unions, including the Green Party and Greenpeace Switzerland. It seeks to impose a statutory limit of 45 years on the operating lives of the country's nuclear power plants and a ban on new construction. If passed and implemented, Switzerland would be nuclear-free by 2029. In France... Environmental services company Veolia Environment has agreed to cooperate with France's National Energy Research Commission, the CEA, in the dismantling and remediation of nuclear facilities. Now that's a growth industry. Two cooperative agreements have been signed between the organizations. The first covers general nuclear facility dismantling and remediation, while the second specifically concerns CEA facilities at Marcoul and Cadarache. Take them down, folks. Take them down. Here in the U.S., the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has often been accused of being asleep at the wheel. But now it's really been asleep at the wheel. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education met with the NRC last week concerning his analysis of what went wrong at San Onofre and how the problems were foreseeable. 
In his weekly podcast, Arnie discusses how the NRC and Southern California Edison deliberately withheld information to make his technical analysis more difficult to accomplish. According to Arnie, during the hearing of the NRC Petitions Review Board, the chairman actually fell asleep during the middle of his presentation. Arnie says, His eyes were rolling back and his head was bobbling like a little bobble toy. Then the second-in-command kept saying, I'm on the clock. I have to get this resolved really quickly. Are you done giving us information? How much more information are you going to give before I have to make my decision? Arnie went on to say, I came away with the conclusion that the NRC basically already made up their mind, and no matter how much new information we brought to the table, we were not going to succeed. After Arnie spoke, during the comments section, Daniel Hirsch of the Nuclear Safety Group Committee to Bridge the Gap and a nuclear lecturer at UC Santa Cruz told the NRC the hearings are Kafkaesque because Edison won't release some very pertinent documents. Dan Hirsch said, You are placing the burden on friends of the earth to tell you what's wrong with a document you will not permit them to see. So I'm asking you for the rationale behind a public agency keeping those documents secret from the public and then demanding that the public critique something they do not have access to. Kafka, indeed. Following up on a story that Arnie broke last week, the Department of Energy is proposing to allow the sale of tons of scrap metal from government nuclear sites, an attempt to reduce waste that critics say could lead to radiation-tainted seatbelt buckles, hip replacements, and other consumer products including pots, pans, knives, forks, and spoons. Approximately 14,000 tons of metal are under review for possible initial release. The Department of Energy's rationale? They say... Any contamination would be so low that a member of the public would be exposed to a negligible individual dose of additional radiation. That, of course, completely ignores the government's own statistics from the BEER-7 report. BEER standing for the Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation. According to BEER-7, and as cited so often by Physicians for Social Responsibility, there is no safe level of exposure to radiation. So the DOE is just full of it. On Friday, February 18, Representative Ed Markey wrote to Energy Secretary Stephen Chu calling the recycling program unwise and stating the proposal should be immediately abandoned. We could say the proposal should be scrapped, but that's too bad a pun even for me. As though we don't have enough nuclear waste of our own, the ironically named U.S. company Energy Solutions is seeking approval to import 20,000 tons of radioactive waste from Italy. And the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, protecting people and the environment not, says it won't halt this import. The NRC says as long as the material can be imported safely relative term there, safely, and someone is willing to accept it, the commission can't keep the waste out. Then what the hell are you good for? If importing nuclear waste becomes legally recognized and profitable as a sound business practice, it could become an even bigger nightmare than it already is. If that happens, I suggest that we just declare the entire United States the designated nuclear dump for the world, and that we all move down to Australia and live near Dr. Helen Caldicott. Fukushima debris has been hitting Hawaii. This is debris that was set adrift by the 2011 tsunami, and it has triggered concerns over the unknown effects of the radiation it may be carrying from the meltdown at Fukushima. Debris has already washed ashore on the islands of Oahu and Kauai, this according to the state's Department of Health. They have been asked to test some of the incoming material for radiation levels. A Kona fisherman discovered a 24-foot Japanese net boat floating along the Hawaiian coast early this month. Here's some legal action that could be a model for the rest of the country. Concerned for the safety of Cape Codders, who live downwind of the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station and in the state-declared ingestion zone of potential radioactive fallout, 
State Representative Sarah Peek and State Senator Dan Wolf of Massachusetts are pushing for laws that will heighten emergency planning efforts and force the aging plant to address safety issues relating to the thousands of spent fuel rods stored in its attic. The aging Pilgrim nuclear power plant in Plymouth, Massachusetts, has accumulated a large store of nuclear waste. Originally designed to hold 880 spent fuel rods, it now has 3,200 stored on the premises, each one of which contains weapons-grade plutonium. The legislation Wolf is proposing would impose a large fee on Entergy, owner of the Pilgrim plant, for every extra fuel rod kept in wet storage on the premises. Pilgrim was built in 1972 and is the same GE Mark I reactor design as the reactors that melted down at Fukushima Daiichi. Now it's time for the week's interview. Since joining Beyond Nuclear in 2007, Cindy Fokers has focused on ionizing radiation and its impact on health and the environment. Before that, for 14 years, she served as the Radiation and Health Specialist at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NIRS. She's the name and email address behind all of those amazingly informational alerts and reports that are sent out from Beyond Nuclear. And I'm delighted that we finally have a chance to talk. Cindy, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. It's an honor, Libby. Let's start with something near and dear to all of our hearts, food. The limit on radiation pollution in Japan is 100 becquerels per kilogram of whatever the food substance happens to be. Whereas here in the U.S., it's 12 times higher, 1,200 becquerels per kilogram. So in other words, food that's illegal to sell in Japan because of radionuclides is considered fine to be sold and consumed here in the U.S. Why is the limit on radioactive pollution so high for U.S. foods? Well... As far as we can discern, and you understand that the FDA made these regulations, and it's a little hard to dig back through why they decided to make it 1,200 becquerels per kilogram. And this is just for the cesiums, 134 and 137. We believe, as near as we can figure, that this was somehow based on dirty bomb standards, which were what they tried to determine um, in the early 2000s. So this is actually a derived intervention limit is what they call this. And what that means is it's an accident scenario limit. In other words, the idea was it was supposed to be for an accident scenario that would see some sort of end. And clearly, as we know, Fukushima is still leaking radioactive contamination into the ocean in Japan. Therefore, the accident hasn't ended. So that begs the question, do these accidents actually end, or should we really be setting a limit that looks at more permanent contamination of our food? And I believe that we need to look at a limit for radiation in our food that is much more considerate of long-term permanent contamination, especially for our children. So that's where I believe it came from, although we're not quite sure, and we believe that it needs to be a good deal lower than that. And I just want to make one, one point. In Japan, even in Japan with that 100 becquerel per kilogram limit, which a lot of people don't actually think they're sticking to, they have lower limits for baby food, water, and various other foodstuffs. So not all foodstuffs, most but not all, are at that 100 becquerel per kilogram limit. Here in the U.S., is there any sign that the FDA is considering a change in their standards? Are they open to it? Has it been addressed that you know of? It has not been addressed that I know of. It doesn't mean that they are not open to it. Uh, one of the reasons we are creating a petition to take the 1,200 becquerel limit for cesium down to five, so that any foodstuffs that are tested that are above five becquerels per kilogram get pulled from the shelves, and any foodstuffs that are zero to five will be properly labeled so that people can make a decision about whether or not they want to ingest that food, knowing the contamination level. But we don't have any indication that the FDA is or is not going to address the issue that we want them to address. So it's possible they might lower it. We're going to hold off on criticizing them too much until we are able to discuss this with them. And we're going to do that through the petition process, which will open up 
uh, and a letter that we're sending to the FDA as well, which will open up their whole re-examination process. So that's what we're going to ask for from them first. Now, I'm one of those people who is still confused about the relationship between the different forms of measuring radiation. There are Becquerels, there are Sievers, there are REMS, there are RADs. What is the most important measurement for the average person to focus on? It's the Becquerel, and here's why. The Becquerel is one atomic disintegration per second. So that is an exact measurement. We know how to measure that. It's not a calculation. We know how to measure it. We can often tell which kind of isotope it is. And the Becquerel is nice because specifically it is a measurement. All of the others that you see, with the exception of the Curie, which I'll talk about in a second, are in some way estimated or derived. Therefore, I believe and the science does tend to support use of direct measurement when trying to assess radiation impacts on human health. Use of direct measurements is always preferable. Of because there's no assumption built in between the direct measurement and whatever the health effect might be. Now, the Curie is an interesting case because the Curie also measures disintegrations per second. However, that's 37 billion with a B disintegrations per second. So you see that the Becquerel is much more, is a much nicer measurement because it allows you to focus in on smaller levels of radiation, which can allow you to assess how smaller levels of radiation affect human health, whereas the Curie is a huge measurement. How does the industry seem to get away with relying on estimates rather than biological testing to determine radiation damage? Honestly, I think it's just the way they've always done things. The first point to understand on this is that a lot of the health assessments that are made for exposure to radiation among humans are based first and foremost, not completely, but first and foremost and historically on physics and engineering principles. So when you see health physicists and health physicists are labeled that, they have gone to school, but for instance, when I reviewed the Purdue curriculum for what a health physicist has to study, out of all their classes to get a degree in health physics, one or two biology courses is, is required. So that, to me, is not enough biology to complement their knowledge of engineering and or physics in order for them to clearly see what could be happening, especially at these lower doses and especially cumulative over generations. So I think that it's something that's just been built into the system, and I think that it's something that we seriously need to take a look at. And I think the first way we do that is by using the direct measurement of the Becquerel. And the reason that I say this is because there have been studies that come out of Belarus. They look at children and they sit them, the children who are contaminated after Chernobyl, they sit them in this chair and these children often live with contamination either in their environment or in the foodstuffs that they eat. They'll sit them in this chair and this chair is able to register the gammas coming off of the children, the cesium gammas specifically. And these studies have found that anything above 10 Becquerel per kilogram gamma coming off those children makes them susceptible to diseases like cardiomyopathy. Um, Can you translate what is cardiomyopathy? It's a heart problem. And it's not the only heart problem. When you get a little higher, you start to see female hormone imbalances and other issues that can be subtle to begin with and that are not necessarily associated in the minds of the people who have looked at these problems over the years with radiation exposure, yet here they are coming in these children. The higher contamination level these children have of cesium in their body, the more severe their diseases and the greater number of diseases they seem to have. It could be heart, it could be nervous system, it could be hormone imbalance, it could be a range of things that start out very subtly and that you might not be able to see in typical medical exams, but that will manifest itself in diseases later on in life. Mm -hmm. 
I'm familiar with this because I was one mile from Three Mile Island when it happened. And even though there were claims that there were no, there was no health impact, there were no problems, I certainly, as I got older, had some severe adrenal thyroid problems that have only recently been reversed through diet and lifestyle changes and supplementation. How do we know when we can blame radiation for our physical problems? I think the point here is, and I know this is going to sound hard for some people, it's going to be hard to accept, but I think that at this point we want to sort of move away from the blame and more into what's in my food, what am I being exposed to, and what do I need, what are the tools that I can use that either the government can provide me or that I can provide myself that will allow me to make decisions for myself and my family as to how much we want to be exposed to. So rather than play this game, which, and, you know, don't get me wrong, there are definitely pieces in the literature, there's definitely research out there that shows that radiation can be responsible either by itself or acting in synergism with other compounds for a number of diseases, not just cancer, but other kinds of health problems, be they subtle or not so subtle. But I think that the best way we as a society can start to approach this is to protect ourselves from the exposures in the first place. How is it that we can do that? Well, one way to do that is once we get this petition up and running through the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, also known as FAN, Beyond Nuclear is part of this coalition. And the FAN coalition is putting together right now a petition to address the 1,200 becquerels per kilogram of cesium limit, which is way, way, way too high, 12 times more than Japan. And we're trying to put that together now. So we're almost finished with that. So people should look for that on the FAN website, on the Beyond Nuclear website in the next couple of weeks. What that's going to do is it's going to ask the FDA to revisit that limit for cesium and reconsider it. Now, this doesn't necessarily address the strontium problem. It doesn't address any problems with plutoniums or the alpha that plutonium gives off. But it's a good start. It's a good start because you start getting people in the mindset of taking responsibility where they can and where they can't, asking that they be able to take responsibility, that they monitor the food properly so that people can tell what they're being exposed to and make decisions for themselves and their children. So this is a way I view actually is quite a powerful way to give the decisions back to the citizens for them and their families rather than relying wholly on the industry and the industry measurement and how they do things with all the confusing REMS and millisieverts and all this business that's out there. What we really need to do is refocus it and give ourselves the power. Well, of course, we're going to link to that petition at Nuclear Hot Seat as soon as it becomes available. But let's move this conversation along a bit. The National Academy of Sciences is poised to convene a committee for Phase 2 of assessing cancer risks around Nuclear Regulatory Commission licensed facilities, meaning the nuke reactors here in the United States. Now, this seems like good news, is it? Yes, it, it is at this point good news if they use the proper methodology in assessing health risks, especially to children, uh, and especially from routine releases from all of these facilities. So people need to be aware that nuclear power reactors and facilities that handle radioactive materials that support in some way those power reactors release radioactivity as a normal course of operation. And they are allowed to do this legally by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So that's the body in the United States that regulates nuclear power. And so they're allowed to release a certain amount of this material. They have an annual limit. And that's what is being assessed for here is what it means to the populations around there. Is there an increased level of disease? And one of the things that Beyond Nuclear recommended and a number of experts recommended is they focus in on children because children are a sensitive subpopulation and they focus specifically on childhood cancers and within that specifically leukemia. The reason that we've chosen that and we recommend that they do that is because a lot of studies across Europe have shown that increase in childhood leukemia around these facilities is evident and they think that it's from normal operations and routine releases. 
So it's a good thing if we as the public put pressure on the committee to perform the proper study methodology rather than some of the other study methodologies, which won't be as sensitive and which can often ask the wrong questions in this particular case. How might people engage in this testing process? Well, there are seven sites that were chosen in phase one of the report. We are now moving on to phase two that were recommended for study because of the populations around them, because of the, so the population number, because of the amount of radioactivity that they've spewed out. And those seven are San Onofre in California. Right. We're aware of that here. Yes. Millstone and Haddam Neck, uh, two separate sites in Connecticut, Dresden in Illinois, Oyster Creek in New Jersey, Nuclear Fuel Services, that's in Irwin, Tennessee, and it's not a nuclear power reactor, but it's the front end of the fuel cycle facility. And then Big Rock Point in Michigan. So those were the seven sites that they've chosen. They're calling them pilot sites, and what they're intending to do is look at the health effects around those sites. What I would encourage people from specifically those sites to do, but it, it doesn't have to be just people from those sites, is to write in to the National Academy of Sciences with comments and say what should be examined for the communities and what the community has noticed as far as health effects and just in general engage with the process. Now, I know that the in Phase 1, the National Academy Committee traveled around to various sites to assess the situations, probably to decide which sites they were going to choose, et cetera. And so I have reason to believe that they will follow the same protocol this time, which means that they could be traveling to these sites. So Beyond Nuclear is going to watchdog this and communicate with people around these sites so that they can come and speak to the committee on what their experiences have been. Wonderful. So we can help get the word out to local media to say, this is a study that's going to be done in your area. You need to have input. Here's how you do it. That's absolutely right, and what we will be then providing from, from Beyond Nuclear to anyone in near those sites that's interested is the sort of study protocol that we and other experts feel is necessary in order to get at the question of does living around an NRC-licensed facility increase cancer risk? In the nuclear arena, it seems that so many of the national and international organizations are all in cahoots with each other. It's like the system is rigged to reinforce the pro-nuclear agenda. For example, could you explain to us the conflict of interest that exists between the World Health Organization, which is the UN organization charged with investigating health issues, and the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is a promoter of nuclear power worldwide? In the late 90s, I wrote a paper on this, actually, and it is up on the Beyond Nuclear website currently. Conflict of interest is what it focused on between the International Atomic Energy Agency and the World Health Organization. What I did was I looked into the charter agreements, the documents that created both of those agencies, and then I looked into the agreement between those two agencies, which was forced upon the World Health Organization in the late 50s. So the World Health Organization was created a long time before the IAEA. The IAEA comes on the scene, and all of a sudden we've got this agreement in the late 50s where if either agency runs into an issue that is at cross-purposes with the other agency's mandate, they must, quote-unquote, adjust the matter by mutual agreement. Well, what that language has actually... Yeah, that, that, that's crazy. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, and I quoted in my paper, what that language actually means is that if the World Health Organization, for instance, sees that there's a problem with an accident like, oh, say, Chernobyl, and they look at the health effects, before they actually delve too far into that, they have to share with the IAEA what it is that they're doing. That has been the effect of this. So what that says to me is that all of the research protocols that the World Health Organization uses, all of the conclusions that they come to, all have to be run through the IAEA process. And have to be approved by them, and there's a possibility of censorship here? 
Yes. I mean, I don't know any different. And that agreement, the language in that agreement certainly does allow a space for that. And that's what's wrong with it, obviously. But part of the reason that's so wrong isn't just because the World Health Organization is the one that's supposed to be assessing health, but because there is no mandate in the IAEA Foundation Charter for them to be doing anything with health. They weren't founded for that reason. And so for them to preempt the World Health Organization or to be able to preempt the World Health Organization through this agreement that was made in the late 50s is really unconscionable and it's inexcusable. And I think that it's why we seem to have gotten in popular press anyway this dichotomy between what is actually happening at Chernobyl as far as health effects go and what the story is, what the official story is, which is more, you know, most of the problems are psychosomatic. They're not psychosomatic. These people are having real problems. And Alexei Oblakov put out a wonderful book. It was a book that was a synthesis of probably 5,000 or so studies on the Chernobyl health effects. And a lot of these studies were from the former Soviet states, so researchers within those states. A lot of them were not available in English, so this is the first time in his book that they've been available in English. And this was really well-researched. It's an amazing resource. And he's saying that a lot of the data points to a million or more deaths from Chernobyl. Now, that's a huge deal, and it's something that they, I believe, have managed to at least part cover up because of this horrible agreement between the IAE and the World Health Organization. Because the IAEA has certain research protocols, again, based mostly on physics and engineering principles and taking and into account nuclear energy that's correct and and taking very little into account when it comes to actual biological effects that are relevant so the whole thing is horrible and i am worried that if we don't step up to the whole fukushima accident and really support the people in japan who are trying to fight this industry and figure out what's going on with them that we're going to have the same thing happen there. It has already started because the articles are coming out. Uh, there have been quite a few, and I think this is part of the ramp up to March 11, that the disinformation about, oh, it's all psychological stress, it has nothing to do with what's going on in your body, has already appeared twice in the last week. And I can see this as a media pattern that friendlies to the nuclear industry have already got their talking points and they're about to put them out simultaneously from a lot of different directions. So this is clearly a point of contention and someplace where we need to step forward and get our voices out contradicting. Certainly in the comments section of any website and letters to the editor and hopefully op-ed pieces as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this, again, and I will go back to the whole body counts for cesium in children and the Becquerel levels. Those are actual counts that we can associate using the studies out of Belarus that they did on the children and the cesium contamination internally, that we can actually use those counts to say we really need to focus on particularly protecting the health of our children. And we have enough studies that we should be able to say that and try and stave off this whole idea of psychosis. Of course those people are having problems. It's stressful to go through what they've gone through. And that shouldn't be poo-pooed just because it was the nuclear industry that caused it. The nuclear industry is causing both psychological and physiological problems and disease. That's what they do. And just because one supersedes the other doesn't mean that the other should be ignored in either case. Now, I think what's happening is you, you're going to have certain amounts of psychosis, certain amounts of mental health. It's very stressful at the beginning. But then what's going to happen is some of the lower levels of contamination are going to start doing their work as this generation ages, and then it has its own children. And then those children are going to be less able to cope with biological insults like diseases and radiation exposure. And then those children are going to have children. So we're talking about a multi-generational biological issue and diseases that can be carried from one generation to the next within our own cells, the, not the diseases themselves, but the beginnings of a weakened immune system or a weakened genetic structure. 
that predisposes these folks to diseases so much easier than previous generations. This is stunning information and of course having gone through this myself and made the decision because nobody could tell me what was wrong, I made the decision not to have children and I'm very glad as I'm seeing this bioaccumulation down the generations having tremendous impact. You know, We could go on about that but there's an important point I would like to include in this conversation and that is the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights. There's a representative who is creating a right to health report on Japan and how they are handling the health impacts of Fukushima. Why is this report historic? I think that it is the first time that human rights has been linked by the United Nations, special United Nations Human Rights Commission, to a civilian nuclear facility accident. So this didn't happen at TMI, Three Mile Island. It did not happen yet, I'm still holding out hope, at Chernobyl. And the Human Rights Commission has gotten involved with Fukushima. Now, there were a couple of stipulations here. The government has to host the Human Rights Commissioner, other, otherwise the Special Rapporteur. So it's not the Human Rights Commissioner himself, but they appoint a Special Rapporteur to examine various areas, one of which is health. And I believe that that particular Special Rapporteur got uh, appointed or the first time in 2006 was the first time that particular office was ever instituted. So it's a relatively new office. I'm really heartened that they considered that health is a human rights issue. It absolutely is, and this recognizes that. And that furthermore, they decided that Fukushima was worth looking into with a lot of support and provocation from the Japanese people. They fought very hard for this, and they encouraged their government and demanded from the Japanese government that this special rapporteur, Anand Grover, be allowed to come in, that's his name, Anand Grover, be allowed to come into Japan and examine the situation there. And that's a really amazing thing that happened, and the report will be released sometime in 2013, we've heard June, then we've heard April, but sometime probably in the middle or so of the year. And according to what I've seen in the video that this special rapporteur has online, his report was very thorough, it was very fair, and it really considered a lot of the issues that need to be considered and are simply not being considered by industry, government, and even the press as a result of this accident. And so it's, it's very, very encouraging on a number of levels. There's a lot of collusion between government, the media, and the nuclear industry. Uh, a lot of it financial, a lot of it just habit through the years, and the fear that comes from the disinformation. What we're talking about here are such enormous issues. I know that there are times when I look at the whole thing and I, I want to weep and go off and live in a yurt somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Do you ever feel like there are times when you just want to, you know, curl in a ball in the corner and cry? And if there are times that hit you in that way or something comparable, what do you do to keep yourself going? Yeah, that happens. But here's the thing. I have always found, and I don't know why this is true, but I have always found that the more I know about something, the more I inform myself, the more hope I get. Because there are ways to help oneself, to help one's family, to help one's community. This is within our reach. It is within our grasp, and it is within our ability. And I often learn that everyone, no matter what side they're on or what views they hold, everyone has a piece of the truth within them. And if you or I can look past what it is about them that we can't abide and look at what they're saying. Oftentimes, it helps me to understand that I can rise above whatever those issues are, and I can speak the truth that I know. And it's comforting, in a way, to know that you don't have to have all the answers, but it's the right questions that often matter more, because the right question leads to the right answer, and the right answer is what we need. And they are out there. I know it. It's happened to me so many times in the 20 or so years that I've been dealing with this issue. So 
I know that, and I believe that firmly. If you have a message for listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, who are certainly motivated to learn about these issues, many of them are very involved in the battle already, but if you had a message to give to my listeners, what would it be? Oh, stay active in this issue. Sign the Bye Bye Becquerel petition that the Fan Coalition is working on. That's the name of it when it comes out. Bye Bye Becquerel? Um, Yes. Bye Bye Becquerel. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yes, isn't it great? Sign that petition when it comes out. Stay on the Beyond Nuclear newsletter email list. We send it out every week. It's a great newsletter. We put a lot of heart into it. Stay informed with our website. Stay informed with the fan Facebook page and Beyond Nuclear Facebook page. And get out in the streets and protest and make them do proper science, right? That's not going to be within everybody's ability. But for those that want to delve into it more, don't ever let anybody in a white coat intimidate you. Don't ever think to yourself that they know more than you do because sometimes a probing question is enough to make them reconsider what they're thinking. I know I've seen it happen, so don't be intimidated. Give us the website for Beyond Nuclear and tell people what they can do to be involved in the organization. The website for Beyond Nuclear is www.beyondnuclear.org. So it's all little letters, all one word. And the thing that you can do, of course, to be involved with our organization is, you know, give us money. (laughs) Um, We really do rely on the support of individuals, even more so than foundations sometimes. And every little bit helps. So that's one thing I would recommend, but stay with the Beyond Nuclear Bulletin. You can go to the website and sign up for it because there's a lot of action items. There are lots of good stories that you can plug into and understand. We send it out once a week. If you need information, if people in your community need information, they can call the office and we can try and help them out. It's what we do. We provide information. We're anxious to help people with local press work as well and get the issue in front and center in the media in local and regional papers, state papers, national papers. Get involved. That's a really good way to get involved is to have our newsletter and to bring us in locally so we can help with your issues. And when you get the newsletter, read it and then do what Cindy tells you to do because it's all good activism and it all pushes our agenda forward in the places where it needs to be from grassroots on up. That's right. Cindy Folkers, thank you so much. You are such a wealth of information and I'm so glad you're on our side. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you are doing and what you will do in the future. That means the world to me, Libby. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Me too. Links to Beyond Nuclear, the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, and several of the reports she spoke about will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Just click on the blog page. Here's the final thought. We're going into busy season in the movement for nuclear sanity. Anniversaries for Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and Chernobyl all fall in a period of six weeks. The looming decision on San Onofre's final demise, I refuse to consider restart an option, is set for some time in March, as is Dr. Helen Caldicott's International Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima, March 11 and 12 in New York. All this plus our local events. We are gearing up to create a quantum leap in the world's relationship to all things nuclear. That sounds huge, doesn't it? Quantum leap. We're used to that term as shorthand for a massive, enormous, gigunda change. But we're just a tiny, underfunded movement, so we can't do that quantum stuff, can we? Ah, here's where a little bit of science goes a long way. In quantum physics, the definition of a quantum leap or a quantum shift is this. The smallest possible change that extrapolates out into an enormous change. It's the nano-shifting of perspective or belief or action at the core that ends up creating a total change in the world. It consists of the word that hooks into someone's psyche, that comes back to haunt them in the middle of the night and causes them to grow into a different belief, a new behavior. 
It's the invisible implant that tweaks a person's psyche just enough that eventually they can no longer be who they were and believe what they believed. When that happens, whether we know it or not, a quantum shift has occurred and our side has won because all future behaviors will be in alignment with the new tweaked belief. In our movement, when what we are trying to accomplish seems overwhelmingly huge, remember to think small. Take care of the little things and the big ones will follow. So I invite you to engage in the nuclear conversation everywhere you go, with checkers at the grocery store, people in line with you at the bank, vendors at the farmer's market. Talk about your concerns at the PTA, your business networking group, with your neighbors at the local library. Don't ever discount your actions as being too small. You never know how the idea you plant today will grow into something that makes a quantum shift in someone else's heart and mind, and thus moves them to make a difference you could not make by yourself. Whatever you can do to build our perspective on the nuclear discussion, do it. It's like the world's great beaches being made from tiny grains of sand. Or, let's face it, the entire physical world being made up of invisible protons, neutrons, and electrons. In that way, the seemingly insignificant shifts you make have the possibility of creating the exact enormous change you want. Yeah, pro-nukers may have tons of money, politicians bought and paid for, whole PR agencies dedicated to their message. And look what they have to do to keep their message afloat. Whereas what we have to offer is truth, sanity, and common sense. Properly framed, what we have to offer is irresistible. One day at a time, one person at a time, one conversation at a time. We can dismantle the nuclear former juggernaut and create the quantum shift we seek. Away from nuclear and into safe, green, genuinely sustainable energy. Then all we have to do is figure out how to get rid of the nuclear industry's leftover sh radioactive waste before it takes out the future. That, too, shall come. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 22, 2013. Material for this podcast was gathered from ENENews.com, Fukushima Diary written by Yori Mochizuki, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, Beyond Nuclear, The Guardian, Forbes.com, Wall Street Journal, Treehugger.com, RT.com, WickedLocal.com, WorldNuclearReport.org, NuclearNews.net, World Nuclear News, and the wonderful, fabulous, ever-present, never-sleeps Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. Click on the blog page. We can also be found if you friend Nuclear Hot Seat on either of its two Facebook pages. And you can access our entire library on the iTunes podcasts. Share us. Link to us. We are the activist voice on nuclear issues. So use us as the resource we are. Send us to someone you know who's pro-nuke and let them hear what it sounds like from our perspective for a change. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion for someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Lee B. Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep.